thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Meara. And welcome to our very special and a very extraordinary worldwide renowned household name that crowd goes wild (laughs) 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 the amazing Nora Gagardis Nora thank you so much for being a part of Upper Chat today no it is an honor and a pleasure absolutely what a treat creator of primal body primal mind i'm just i'm reading all about you the paleo diet beyond the paleo diet total health longer life rethinking fatigue hello hello yes and i have my my brand new book uh primal fat burner which actually was also published throughout australia and the uk and all of that so that should be on the uh bookshelves everywhere yeah that's so exciting. And we're thrilled to have you on the show to talk about all of that. Yes. So, Kimmy, you're the one who actually managed to get um, Nora onto the show for us. Tell us a little bit about how that all came about. <laughs> so I have always followed Nora because of Cindy, so we're all a bit groupy-ish here. Um, but I think where I really got to experience Nora, first, Nora firsthand was in Welling, uh, in Auckland um, when we were on the Pete Evans tour. And when Nora was up on stage, I went all squidgy in the knees and thought, how can I possibly, possibly follow that? Um, and I didn't really know... My role was only small on the Pete Evans tour, but after listening to Nora, not only did they get to hear her wealth of knowledge, uh, particularly around eating and very much so around the power of food and whole food, but we also got to chat afterwards and I don't know, I, I, I feel like I have a very, it was like meeting another soul sister, it was like meeting a, a beautiful friend that I'd known for a long time. Yeah, and, we sort of bonded. We did, we did. And from there I was like, oh, I want to get to know her more. And we got to play again in Wellington. And you may not know this, Nora, but my daughter was at the back of the room while you were speaking on stage um, in Wellington. And Taylor has been a vegetarian or had not eaten a lot of meat at all for a long time. And she was a ballerina. And I don't eat red meat, but I've always eaten chicken and fish. And and I've always thought that she was so, not thought she was low in iron. And there was all sorts of things around her diet and being such a performer, dancing 20 to 35 hours a week on top of school and everything. And it was something you said in your talk, and she can't quite pinpoint it, but it was certainly around teenage women, teenage girls, and the relationship to eating whole food. And you weren't just focusing specifically on meat, but you were talking around the power of how certain foods have certain effects on us throughout our hormonal life. And she went away from that and unbeknown to me from the, da- the next day on or dinner that night, actually, she um, asked to eat meat. So, wow. um, and she's been on a mission ever since. So not only do I feel very inspired by you with your knowledge, I love you and your beautiful wife. I love what yeah. you're about. I love what you speak about, but I certainly love the way you relate your knowledge. And Cindy has been a massive fan for a long time 
time and it was, she was the one that first introduced me to you. So that's how I'm so excited we got to have you. Oh my goodness, what an amazing story. That, that yeah, it just blew my socks off. That's great. Mm. So Nora, yeah, you're amazing. Nora, tell us, how did you get into this? What got you into the health field in, in the first place? Was it a family continuation? Um, or did you have an illness? How did you do this? How did you get started? Well, yeah, so what, what got me started in the early, uh, in a, my earliest interest in nutrition basically came from what had been, up to that point, a lifelong struggle with clinical depression, uh, which eventually morphed into, you know, or had added to it both anxiety and panic attacks. So it was, you know, um, you know, it was quite a struggle. And, and the, the depression vacillated between sort of a chronic dysthymia all the way to suicidal ideation. And it was, uh, you know, the early part of my life was really quite a struggle. And I stumbled across, I, I think I became interested, um, you know, early my first year in college is when it really blossomed my my interest and that's a longer story but but i uh i read a book on on diet and health i don't even remember the name it was just some pop you know book um but the idea that i could change the way i felt with what i might eat or or what kinds of supplements i might take was extremely intriguing to me and as I began to dig, and I'm just sort of a, you know, truth archaeologist, so I just started digging and uh, began reading much more, uh, you know, more sophisticated information, uh, much more in-depth information. And in short order, I was, you know, I guess today they call it biohacking, but, you know, I was trying to basically utilize nutrients in a way that, that could alter the way I felt. And I had some significant success with that, certainly enough to keep my interest up. And I found the topic absolutely riveting. Um, and it became a lifelong obsession, really. And so, but, you know, early on, I really didn't have a, a particular framework in which to put all this knowledge about different nutrients and different supplements and, and things. Uh, I just... I wasn't thinking in terms of food. I was thinking in terms of the components of food, how I could manipulate those to feel different. And uh, and it wasn't until many years later that I began, you know, realizing I needed a more cohesive, more foundational framework in which to put everything. And early on, I guess, you know, vegetarianism sounded like a good idea because it was a very popular health approach sort of in that genre. And so I figured, well, if that's the healthiest way of eating, that's what I want to do. And it was almost an unmitigated disaster for me. I developed an eating disorder, my depression deepened. Um, and uh, it was, uh, it was, it was not good. I, I can just say it was not good. And so within a, you know, a little over a year of, of that in a sort of self-abuse is what it amounted to. I eventually started eating meat again, and I and I did it with a feeling of resignation and and almost feeling a failure, like I had somehow, you know, I had blown it. You know, I couldn't even eat this what was supposed to be the healthiest way of, of you know the healthiest diet, 
and uh, I felt really, you know, kind of ashamed of myself, I guess, in a way. But I just went back to eating meat, and it's sort of interesting. Not long after that, my my you know eating disorder sort of cleared up, and um, you know, I was still struggling with depression and all of that, but it, it things were a little bit better, um, and I wasn't obsessing so much about uh, about food. So, uh, and then it wasn't until, I guess, roughly 1991, uh, where I had an opportunity. See, I've led a lot of lifetimes in this one. And this, in this particular lifetime, I was doing work in wildlife research. And I had an invitation from the world's foremost scientific authority on wolves. His name is Dr. L. David Meech, to accompany him. He was a good friend of mine at the time to uh, Ellesmere Island and to a location on Ellesmere Island. We were, Ellesmere is the northernmost landmass before the polar ice cap. So we were roughly 500 miles from the North Pole. And there, there we uh, lived for the entire summer with a family of wild wolves and where we were doing behavioral research and whatever. And that was, you know, the culmination of really a lifelong, lifelong dream. If you would have asked me when I was five years old what I wanted to do more than anything it would have been go to the Arctic and live with a family of wild wolves. Either that or meet Dr. L. David Meech, right? <laughs> and so not only did I get to do that, but guess with who, you know? So it was, yeah, it was like I sat the whole, there the whole summer pinching myself. Well, pinching myself and then, you know, getting, uh, just having terrible cravings for fat. And it was, it was funny because before, right before I left for Ellesmere, you know, I had been eating, pretty much according to government guidelines, you know, pretty much low fat and, you know, lots of grains and legumes and, you know, all of that, you know, lean meat, etc. And I was quite concerned, you know, I was doing a lot of juicing in those days, and I was quite concerned that I wasn't going to have access to fresh produce for the entire summer, um, because this is really remote. And, um, there, you know, it's permafrost, nothing grows out of the ground except things that only ruminants, you know, can eat and make, uh, you know, make anything with. So, um, and so I got there and discovered rather to my surprise pretty quickly that the last thing on my mind was a salad. Um, and I found myself sitting on my backside on the tundra and watching wolves do whatever they do. Uh, and the whole time, with nothing better to do. And also because I just wanted it, I would be eating a lot of fat, rich foods. I went through a lot of cheese. I went through a lot of salami and, you know, um, and, uh, and also nut butter and, and, uh, you know, nuts and things like that. And then once a week we would make this pilgrimage, uh, quite a number of miles away from our encampment, uh, and where the den was to a military weather station. And there we were able to, thankfully, take showers. And we were also able to maybe make a 15-minute call home to loved ones and reassure them that we hadn't been eaten by a polar bear. And then, and then I was also um, told by the officer in charge, um, a lovely uh, woman from Montreal, her name was Jacinthe Savary, and I remember that. And anyway, she said, look, if... if you know, you're interested, you know, our mess hall is open. We always went in the off hours, you know, it was 24 hour daylight. So we always went like three in the morning uh, so that we wouldn't disturb what normally went on there during the day that we wouldn't get in the way of anything or whatever. And so everything was really quiet when we went. 
And she said, look, you know, mess hall's open. If you want, you know, you can go in there. If there's something laying out that looks good to you, by all means, you know, go ahead and, and have whatever. So after I took my shower and whatever else, I wandered into the mess hall and there with the light of heaven shining upon it was this enormous bowl of butter. And I just immediately made a beeline over to the butter bowl and right next to it was a loaf of bread, which was sort of incidental, but hey, it was a vehicle for the butter. So I threw the slice or two and I was still eating crap like that in those days. So I threw a slice or two in the toaster and just slathered the butter on as thick as I could and just kept eating and, you know, slice after slice of this until I became too embarrassed to continue. And then, um, you know, basically went, went back to the tundra and, and really we were either sitting on the tundra watching wolves around the den, or if we were following them on their hunts, we used four wheelers for that. So let's just say there wasn't a lot of exercise occasionally in, you know, at the end of a day where we decided we were going to get a few hours of shut-eye, sometimes I took a little stroll across the tundra, which was hard to walk on because it was very hummocky, you know, um, a lot of frost heaving and things like that. And so it was very uneven ground. And uh, I found myself, um, you know, not going very far uh, doing that. But occasionally I took a little stroll across the tundra. So basically, I sat on my backside all summer long, ate fat, rich foods, and you would have thought I would have ballooned uh, after doing that. But instead, what happened was that I lost about 25 pounds. Wow. Um, and yeah, so, and, and, you know, I understand that there were, there were thermogenic forces at work here. I mean, I was in a cold environment, although I was quite well... Um, bundled against the cold and, and quite comfortable. And we even had a, you know, a couple of, well, 60 degree Fahrenheit days. I don't know how that translates, sorry, to centigrade, but, you know, just, just a little cooler than room temperature, basically. Um, you know, where, what you would consider, but, you know, a little cooler than room temperature. So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, that, it wasn't like polar temperatures necessarily, but we did have a lot of freezing days and like I said, I was well bundled. Um, and so, you know, I know that, th that there was, when you're in the cold, your body's brown fat reserves, which are brown because they're so full of mitochondria, will actively burn white fat, the stuff we typically want less of, for energy. And so clearly some of that uh, was going on, but that wasn't the whole story. And, and it niggled at me. It's like, how could this be? Because this is exactly the opposite of what should have happened to me. And, uh, and I also spent time in uh, some of, you know, remote, well, there was an, a remote Inuit village uh, called Resolute Bay. And there were about 200 uh, residents there. And this was on Cornwallis Island in the Queen Elizabeth uh, High Arctic Archipelago. Um, and they're, you know, they live so remotely, and there's permafrost there too. They can't grow anything, and it's it's very difficult to get things in and out of there. Once every week or two, there would be a supply plane, a twin otter plane would fly in and drop off a few supplies, you know, some prepackaged, you know, processed foods, you know, non-perishables, and maybe a few limp vegetables. But you know, the the uh, you know, the so-called grocery store there was, was, was very tiny, extremely tiny. And, um, it, and everything was quite expensive. 
And so people, you know, I think they liked those junk foods, but they couldn't really afford them. And so it was a roughly 80% at least, you know, subsistence lifestyle up there where they were hunting and fishing and um, things like that for their food. And it was clear to me, you know, they, they were like dead frozen seals on people's front lawns because it was natural refrigeration or natural mm-hmm. freezer. Um, and um, did, and did that was... Did they eat any carbs? Did they eat any carbohydrates whatsoever or was it just blubber, protein, the, liver? Yeah, it would have been, it would have, fat would have dominated certainly their calories there, but uh, fat and protein and, um, you know, protein and, you know, from both meat and organ meats and things like that. And, you know, that's pretty much about it with, with, with the exception of probably some occasional, uh, you know, industrialized food that they were able to maybe have as a treat or something like that. But it just wasn't practical for them to eat a processed food diet, you know, or standard American diet or standard Western diet or whatever. It just wasn't at that time particularly practical. I think now that those foods have, have genuinely become a very real problem in those communities, um, especially with the younger generation, the kids, they just, they just want all that stuff. You know, they have satellite TV now and, you know, they can see all the commercials and everybody drinking Coca-Cola and, hey, you know, have a Coke and a smile, and, you know, a toothless smile. Um, and there was no natural carbohydrate, so they didn't have... no. Like I, I know that there's a tribe in um, the Pamir, which is the panhandle of Afghanistan, and they live at 14,000 feet. And it's a very, very much a, a landscape of what you're talking about. But in the summer, they would eat rhubarb and spring onions and they would trek and, and buy um, whole grain and make um, breads with that whole grain. Um, they would only do that in the summer. So I, I always wondered, you know, what the Inuits actually consumed if like they must have had some sort of carbohydrate available to them in the summer in a natural way i'm not talking about grocery stores but in a natural right. way mm. uh, in, in the high arctic no uh there weren't even berries in the summer and wow. it, the only plants that grew really could only feed ruminants now i i would imagine that they occasionally dined on the contents of the stomachs of the animals that they hunted and that ah. would have probably been it but but in terms of starch or sugar content, you know, we're talking, you know, negligible amounts. And I don't even know where they would have gotten it, um, uh, at least from their natural environment uh, up there. And, you know, this sort of, so, you know, and, and I didn't see any obesity there. And the kids were, you know, I remember at one o'clock in the morning, was, it just I landed at a very weird hour there. And. Um, we kind of dropped everything off at the place we were going to stay. And then we wandered around the town a little bit. And the little kids were out at that hour without any gloves on or whatever. And they're wearing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle t-shirts and playing on the monkey bars and whatever. And they saw us and they came running over and all giggly and just very happy, well-adjusted, curious kids and really funny and sweet, wonderful dispositions, you know. And all this is just sort of you know, the back of my head, you know, the, the little chipmunks running in the wheel, right? And I'm going, why, you know, wow, this is when I realized what it was that they had to eat and what they didn't have to eat. Um, I, it got me thinking. And I, and as I sat on the tundra and, and, you know, for long hours and, you know, weeks and months that I was there, uh, you know, I realized that 
that there had been human people groups living in this area for more than 10,000 years that we know of. Um, and, you know, under similar climatic conditions. And that, in fact, that landscape would have looked very similar to, you know, the Northern European landscape during the throes of the last ice age when Cro-Magnon humans went marching across. And, uh, you know, and I thought, how can this be? You know, how could, how could anybody survive without, you know, without fruits and vegetables? What the heck? And so when I got home, uh, it was just sort of in the back of my head. And then I stumbled across the work of Weston Price. And I'm, I'm sure, I'm guessing your listeners have some idea of who he is, right? Am I correct? Well, they, they probably know more Sally Fallon and... Um, right. And they her, know her version of all yeah, of this. Okay, yeah, so, but they know who he, who he is, yes. right? He was a nutritional pioneer. And, you know, during a time, during a very unique time in history where we had just developed air travel and just developed air travel, but... Um, but there were still traditional and 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 quite a few thriving primitive so-called um, societies uh, throughout the world. And I I really envy the guy. You know, he was able to over a period of ten years he covered over a hundred thousand miles and spent time among you know the Aborigines in Australia where you guys you know are uh, and 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 uh, the Maori and he went to. Um, you know, northern Alaska and certainly spent some time among the Inuit and other native North American tribes, went to South America, went to Africa, went to some other remote areas in, in Europe where uh, people had been leading a very pastoral and very isolated lifestyle for a couple thousand years. And, and you know, he took a look at what they were eating and what their health was doing. And, and what he found was that wherever people were eating the diet that was the diet of their ancestors in a traditional way, um, that their health was, you know, uniformly, you know, quite superb, that they were free of disease, free of, you know, generally, generally, you know, mental and emotional uh, illness. They didn't have, you know, he wasn't running into birth defects or anything else. Uh, it was kind of amazing. And of course, he's very famous for having taken a lot of pictures uh, of these people groups. And then he also went and he studied uh, members of these different groups who had uh, moved into more industrialized society and examined them and examined, um, you know, their children and to see what had happened to their health. You know, his, his hypothesis was that he thought that, that the declining health of, of modern society might have something to do with the industrialization of the food supply, etc. That was his hypothesis, and he'd heard wonderful things about Native people and their, and their excellent health. And uh, so he set about basically examining that, that connection, and, you know, he found it in spades. So, and you can imagine throughout the world going from, you know, the desert to the Arctic to the jungles and, you know, savannas and wherever else, that there would have been a huge, you know, difference in ecosystems, huge variety of foods that these primitive or traditional peoples might have eaten and uh, where they seem to exhibit excellent health. So what certain people <laughs> have taken away from that message uh, is this whole idea of, well, jerf, right? Just, just eat real food. Um, and as long as you, as long as you're eating food in its whole natural state, it's all good. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it, it, and, and 
in in my mind, I think that people kind of missed um, missed a point a little bit that one of the things that Weston Price did that was very smart and that for some reason, you know, tends to kind of get sort of glossed over is he asked himself the very important and very key question. What did all of these different diets where people seem to experience superb health, what did they all have in common? And there were two things that he found that they had in common. Number one, that you know, he was looking for a vegetarian or vegan culture out there. He couldn't find one. He was quite disappointed about that. Yeah. So every single culture that, that exhibited superb health, they all consumed as many animal source foods as were available to them. But the second thing that they all had in common was that in every case of superb health, the most important foods, the most sacred foods, the foods that were most central to um, um, more, more, the most sought after, you know, in, in every single society were the most fat and fat soluble nutrient rich. And what I, my takeaway from this is that that was the, those two things outlined what is most foundational about, you know, the optimal, whatever the optimal human diet would have to be, would have to include those two things. And from there, the rest is nuance. From there, you know, uh, various cultures added various things as they had available to them. Um, And if those things were less than optimal, as long as the foundations were in place, you know, they were living in a pristine enough environment and, and had a robust enough genome that they were able to compensate for things that may have been compromising, like sugars and starches in their diets, for instance. Things that may have been, you know, yeah, getting into, you know, the, you know, finding a hive, you know, and, and finding a bunch of honey once in a while or gorging themselves on fruits, uh, which was one way that primitive people also induced insulin resistance was by eating a lot of fruit late in the season so that they could put some fat on for the upcoming lean months of, of, of winter. Um, so, um, so basically, you know, it, there's this whole kind of point of view within the whole uh, kind of popular paleo genre Okay, that as long as something was natural, as long as it grew out of the ground, as long as our ancestors were able to stick it in their mouths and seem to do okay and not drop dead, then it's then then it's good enough for us now, too. And that as long as we stick to whole foods and really, if that's all you do, if that's your only takeaway, you are going to be ahead of the curve in terms of the standard Western diet. There's no question you're going to be ahead of the curve if you're eating whole foods. Mm -hmm. However. We are not living in Weston Price's time anymore. We're not living in the world of our ancestors anymore. Heck, we're not even living in the world of our great-grandparents, our grandparents, or even our parents for that matter. We are living in a toxic soup you know, <laughs> nowadays where we have compromised, everything's compromised, you know, air, water, and of course our food supply. And uh, so much of it is adulterated with so many things. And you know, with each subsequent generation after, you know, once we adopted an agricultural lifestyle, uh, we became demonstrably compromised almost immediately. People claim that, for instance, that our 
prehistoric ancestors. Well, they only lived till they were 40 anyway. So, you know, well, okay. Um, we're, we are talking about average age of mortality, which includes infant mortality. And uh, the primary cause of death in prehistoric humans was accident and infection. And if you managed to get around the infant mortality thing, the accident and infection thing, you stood a chance of living every bit as long as anyone does today, but without the afflictions, the maladies, you know, the, um, the loss, uh, extreme loss of function, um, dementia and everything else that is so common in today's modern population, in modern aging populations. But, um, so it's, 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 uh, but, but when we adopted agriculture, we, that average life expectancy literally dropped in half. And nobody was actually living longer than about 25 years until the end of the 18th century. And so, you know, agriculture didn't exactly bring us, um, you know, holy grail of, of health and vitality. We began developing the earliest signs of the diseases of Western civilization at that time. And it's been a slippery slope ever since. And then, God forbid, the Industrial Revolution, you know, a couple hundred years ago, um, basically, you know, accelerated that whole process of, of uh, you know, degradation of health and uh, increased, um, you know, birth defects and increased problems with both mental and, and physical health and increasing issues with metabolic issues like obesity, um, development of things like diabetes and cancers and all kinds of things. And, um, and now, you know, it's like 30 is the new 45 nowadays. And for the first time in the last couple of years, you know, children are no longer expected to live as long as their parents. So, um, and 30 is the new 45 with respect to onsetting, you know, the age at which disease is expected to onset. But you don't even have to be 30 nice. to see the signs of these things. You see obese children everywhere. And you see teenagers with autoimmune diseases. We've got a really, in Australia alone, we have um, cancer in children mm -hmm. under the age of five that is the biggest killer, brain tumours. So it's, yeah, Nora, I'm, I'm yes. right where you are. Um, I yeah. agree with you all the way. I, I feel yeah. you have just destroyed our ability to be healthy because of um, the industrialised and our agricultural, the industrialization of food and our agricultural practices. Right. Yeah. So, so we don't have the same wiggle room that our prehistoric ancestors had, that you know, the people in Western Price's time had. We just don't have the same wiggle room. And so when I, you know, started, when, when I first found Weston Price's work, well, okay, so... Yeah, all right. When I first found his work, I realized that, okay, I'm on to something here. This, there's something really important. But it didn't go back far enough for me. Because it seemed to me that if, if I could find what was most consistently available as food to our most um, ancient you know, predecessors, you know, the, the kinds of foods that would have been most consistently available throughout our evolutionary development would have been the foods that would have shaped our physiological makeup, that would have shaped our basic nutritional requirements. And to me, that seemed like the only rational starting place um, because I knew that the world was a totally different place prior to 10,000 years ago, roughly 10,000 years ago. Um, the, what we think of as the Ice Age, which I realized was a whole different set of affairs where you, know, you are in Australia, but um, it, 
it was uh, something that actually came to a cataclysmic end, uh, you know, during that about 11,500 years ago or so. And in a way that melted the ice sheets in, in some even estimate could have even been a matter of weeks. It was very, very abrupt. I mean, ocean levels rose hundreds of feet, whatever, you know, cultures or societies that were living on the coast, you know, became submerged. Um, and, uh, we had over 120 species of megafauna just vanish in the blink of an eye. And you have to realize that from about two and a half million years ago at the outset of the Quaternary Ice Age all the way up to uh, the end of that period of glacial advance about 10,000 years ago, um, we had a, a world filled with these enormous herbivores. And we actually had a preference for hunting them, mm-hmm. preference for their meat. And these are animals, these enormous animals, you know, the bigger the animal, typically the higher the fat content. And so your woolly mammoths and things like that roughly had 50%, you know, body fat on them or more. Uh, we would have gobbled all that up, the brain tissue, the bone marrow, whatever we could get into. Uh, and we became very, um, we basically became fat hunters is, is what it boils down to, to our physical, phys- you know, Ice Age physiological makeup fat to us meant survival. And survival, of course, trumps everything else. When those animals died out very abruptly, we were left with much smaller, leaner game. We still selected as much as we could for the fattest animals we could hunt, but it became, you know, greater challenge. Um, and I know that it's, it's true of the... Uh, uh, um, Dr. Sophus Lomholtz, I believe, was a was an anthropologist who studied the Aborigines way back when, um, in the 1920s, 1930s, and he found that they just had uh, an obsession with with dietary fat. That was what they went after. I know that if an Aboriginal hunter would kill a kangaroo, and um, and that kangaroo didn't have enough fat on it, they would leave that carcass to rot in the sun and find something else so um yeah, they, very very important nutrient in other words it doesn't have to be cold out for this to be important no no this it was definitely a megafauna here in australia um, right i think it was before the australian aboriginal arrived the, the belief is that the australian aboriginal people arrived around the um 110 What's interesting, and and I think that you would absolutely love this, um, is there's a new book out called Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe. And he actually shows that the Australian Aboriginal people, because um, that because of our tundra and our, like our deserts and everything like that, they actually were agriculturalists as well. But they had no gluten grains. They had uh, something called nadu. They had another one called kangaroo, um, kangaroo grass. They had another one that was like oat and another one like rice. And it's really interesting that... Um, nobody had talked about this before until this book emerged uh, about the agricultural practices of the Australian Aboriginal people. But they knew that they had to painstakingly like prepare these grains so they wouldn't kill them. And, um, and they didn't eat a lot of them because harvesting was very hard. <laughs> they, were small, right. they were small grass seeds and they were, they were very, very hard, but it's, 
I'm sure that they had to adapt to that as, you know, as, as climate change. And, and, but they were still hunter-gatherers as well. They still hunted the, the meats and they, they looked for the fats. They loved the richity grub. Uh, right, like right, yeah. yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, like, I res- love listening to what you're saying because it's right down my alley. I just, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, my understanding too is that because I, I went to, and, uh, uh, to Uluru and, and spent a little time around there and, and I was speaking to one of the, uh, you know, kind of, local experts or whatever and he was saying that the uh, what are the Pitanjaro people there that they consumed a total of maybe about a tablespoon of sugar per year yeah you know and a lot of it just you know there are these yellow flowers I forget what they're called they're absolutely gorgeous and they would they would uh, maybe honey flowers they call them whatever because the dew on the flowers of the nectar was very sweet and they would suck on those flowers but it was a you know it was a negligible amount of sugar that that they got in their diets oh that was and the yeah. fruit salad plant they i think they call it the fruit salad plant because it was so sweet okay that no they didn't call it that when i was there oh. but it could it could be that that's another common name for it that wasn't what what they told me but but they were beautiful beautiful yellow flowers i remember that i got some beautiful pictures of them um but yeah you know and they would have dug up uh you know tubers and things like that but you have to realize that these wild tubers and whatever much more fibrous uh, than whatever it is that we cultivate now and are and are sold in the grocery stores, mm. um, and wild plants also, you know, as as you point out, they the thing about plants is you know they've been around a lot longer than we have, and and they are um, they are expert chemists, mm. and uh, if you you know if something comes and and threatens them <laughs> you go to you know to eat them um they they have chemicals that know how to mess you up <laughs> you know that can mess with your um endocrine system that that can or have toxic alkaloids that can kill you or make you extremely ill and so you know it was uh it was a much trickier matter eating plants uh, not just in Australia, but anywhere, you know, in the world where plants grew, um, that plant-based foods are kind of labor-intensive. You have to know them very, very well. You have to know what parts are edible when. Uh, very frequently, they require extensive cooking in order to help neutralize some of the compounds, some, not not necessarily all. And um, it, it's and what you get out of that calorically is negligible. Mm. So not a big return on effort. Um, where on the other hand, obviously, you know, animal source foods would have been incredibly nutrient dense. And, you know, I've spent time in all sorts of remote wilderness locations. It's just, it's just kind of what I do or what I've done in the past. And um, lots of time on my own in, in remote areas. And, and, you know, if it's, you know, it's um, cold or rainy outside or, or you know, whatever have you, you know, the last thing you're thinking of is a salad. <laughs> you, want, you want, you know, or some sort of pansier tofu cutlet or something. You know, you really want something you can sink your teeth into. You want nutrient density. No, and, no, I have to say that you actually, you know, quite frankly, Bear Grylls comes to mind when I oh, hear sure. conversations. And, you know, Cindy is our Bear Grylls, which is quite 
understandable as to why you two have gone down this beautiful romantic journey around <laughs> this incredible um, journey. But what I want to know is if you are out in the wild and you are like that, like, do you then lose the the thought of an animal you don't want to hurt or kill something, you just want to eat it? It's like, tell me what that's like when you're out in the wild. What do you mean when you say you just you want something nutrient-dense? I'm just well, wondering about stuff. I mean, wherever I've been out in the wilderness, I've typically brought food with me. So, you know, um, you know, I've not been in a situation where I've been particularly desperate. Although, I when I was on Ellesmere, we did occasionally hunt. Uh, there, there are these very large rabbits, um, like Arctic hare. They call them. They weigh like twelve pounds a piece, and uh, they, um, uh, you know, we occasionally procured them uh now they weren't terribly fatty but um well they had some they did have some and and i will say that there was a very very i mean i remember one day looking you know at this at this pair of arctic hair down on the edge of the fjord and um and you know we we you know we shot them um because number one we needed to eat but also uh, you know, Dave was doing certain um, experiments and that were actually kind of interesting with with the wolves, with different parts of these of these uh, rabbits. But anyway, it was a very very different experience um, eating a meal. You know, eating that meal. I remember that night um, we cooked up some of the meat, and I had just been looking you know in the eyes of these things earlier in the day and you know up to that point pretty much all the meat i had gotten had been you know just sort of handed to me you know, shrink wrapped you know in the store and it was a very very different i mean it, my the sense of reverence that i had that i experienced during that meal and i've thought quite a bit about that and i can't help but wonder whether uh and i and i'm looking for data to support the idea that when we have that firsthand knowing of where our food has come from, um, and we have that sense of sacred when we take it in, uh, which certainly Aboriginal and and uh, and uh, you know Indigenous people throughout the world, uh, I think, experience a deep reverence for life, and 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 in those moments of taking a life, and then taking that the life force of that animal into their own bodies, that it's got to be different somehow in terms of how your body handles that food with the state of mind that you're in when you actually consume it. Um, as all I know is that when I ate uh, that way up there, it was a very, very different experience for me. Um, and yeah, it's very different from buying something shrink wrapped and just, you know, cooking it up and then slamming it down your gullet as you drive to work, right? Yeah. Very, very different. Um, I'd actually like so to address. I'd like to address here, Nora, the amount of people that I hear, and I notice Karen Smith's being very quiet here because she's vegan. Um, I'm dropping on you, Karen oh. Smith. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, not a word. Not a word. Not a word. <laughs> she's not noticed that, Miss Karen. <laughs> what, Nora? What I what I want to ask is that I notice whenever I'm hearing people speak at the moment they always say a vegan or vegetarian diet. They, they don't believe that, um, that 
I, I, I don't know. They must have this, this very narrow point of view as far as how we consumed food for millions of years before we got to this point. And everybody thinks that it, you know, this vegan and vegetarian way of eating is, um, well, I guess vegetarian being that they still eat animal products. So we do know the Hindus have done that for 5,000 years. But as far as the vegans go, that long. Why, why do you think this is um, happening? And it's our young girls that need like our very young teenage girls that seem to be going vegan and you can't seem to convince them otherwise that they may be doing more harm to their hormones and their body than they're, they're doing good. Well, so I think that indigenous populations around the world from time immemorial have probably under, had a deeper reverence for life than anything we can comprehend today. But it didn't make them vegetarians or vegans. Um, what it did is it, is it gave them a sense of the sacred. when They didn't even necessarily see the animals that they hunted as being in, inherently separate from themselves. They saw these animals as an extension of themselves and experienced the taking in of their life force as sort of an energy exchange and recognized that their, that their own life was, you know, that it, it's all part of a cycle, right? It's not a, it's not a food chain or a ladder or anything like that. It's a circle. Um, and there's a cycle of life of which we are a part, whether we, whether we like to think about that or not, and and I and I really think that the the this this development of well, I have a few different you know theories about why this has become more popular. Number one, I think that you know we are so disconnected from the natural world in which we evolve. We we are we are so far removed from the natural world that we evolved from. You know, we're no longer in direct contact with our ecosystem. And I think that this way, you know, in a vegetarian and vegan diets are, are somewhat symptomatic of that. There's not a real understanding of how that cycle of life works out in nature. Because we're so removed from it, it's all very sanitized for us. And we look upon animals as being sort of cute and fuzzy. And I mean, I, I have been an animal lover. Look, I've been an animal lover all my life. I'm not going to make snarky remarks about you know, uh, bunny huggers or anything like that. Um, my, you know, for my earliest childhood, you know, I've, I've worked for the Sierra Club Wildlife Task Force. I've gone door to door for Greenpeace. I've done veterinary work. Um, I've, you know, I've been very, very, very active in, in, in um, let's just say that the suffering of anything or anyone matters to me. But I also recognize that, again, there's a cycle of life of which I'm a part. And it's, it, 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 it was genuinely hard for me to see those rabbits get killed. It was horrible for me to, to watch that. Um, and I realized, again, how far removed I had been from the natural environment that, you know, that sustains us all, um, no matter how disconnected we think we are from it. Um, we're, we are of this, of this earth. And, and it's, you know, it's a rite of passage, I guess, in a way. Yeah. And, um, you know, the other thing is that, you know, in the last, you know, 10,000 years or so since we began adopting an agricultural lifestyle, um, you know, this made a lot of things suddenly possible that, you know, hadn't been before. I mean, it, it, we became more centralized in our populations. We were, became, you know, we, we moved away from being nomadic and following 
the cycles of animals and and plants and things like that to kind of living in one place and growing lots of grains that we for one thing i mean i think we began adopted an agricultural lifestyle in part because we became addicted to these foods because once you you well grains contain opiates for instance natural opiates um, gluten molecule contains both glutamorphin and protonorphin, which absolutely uh, trigger opiate centers in the brain. Starch and sugar in general will trigger opiate centers in the brain. And of course, as soon as we figured out we could ferment this stuff into beer, the dye was cast, <laughs> you know. And uh, we were willing to go from what had been a fairly, you know, I mean, the hunter-gatherer, you know, workday was like three hours. You hunt, you gather, and you're done. Um, and in and, and so we traded that for now eight plus hours of backbreaking labor in the fields for a nutritionally greatly inferior food to which we were not adapted as a species, and that caused uh, tremendous um, health problems, uh, caused uh, nutrient deficiencies, and and uh, began you know the process of creating you know the earliest. Uh, signs of you know cardiovascular diseases and 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 dental caries and birth defects and and uh, we lost uh, bone density and and b- began developing skeletal abnormalities and things like that and you know you can any paleoanthropologist worth his salt can look at a set of human remains and tell you whether they're pre-agricultural or post-agricultural. Um, I have an article. Is this where a whole lot of, um, I remember hearing a holistic dentist talk in Sydney once talking, he brought up all the the images of the teeth, um, the profile of the teeth and how much that's changed so radically over the last 200 years. And that's where a lot of the research is is coming from. Noreen, do you mind if I just interject here a little bit and just ask you one question here? Sure. Um, Can you... Can you explain through through all of this? Can you just repeat? I know a lot of mums listen to this podcast, and I, love, I know a lot of mums have teenagers um, and children. And I would just you had such a profound impact on Taylor um, in your talk. Could you just explain to us if you haven't finished quite what you were saying before? Then please finish that first. But when you get a minute, could you tell us how? How, how profound it actually is in your thoughts and feelings around particularly teenage girls, the impact of, of animal products and, and the, certainly the way that you speak of eating. Can you, can you give us a little insight into that? Right. Well, look, that there are nutrients that can only be gotten, uh, nutrients that we require as human beings that can only be gotten from animal source foods. and and, you know, f- fats and cholesterol and all of these things become especially important during periods of growth and of, you know, development of uh, new hormones and, and things like that, um, the surges of hormones. And uh, there, look, as human beings, we have, now let me back up. So think about the animals that are actually designed to eat a plant-based diet, okay? The majority of them have four stomachs, um, but they basically have, well, what are they doing all day long? Their faces are in the grass, they're in the trees, they're in the bushes. They have to eat all day long constantly 
in order to be able to meet their nutrient and you know their nutrient requirements and their caloric requirements. And um, but it's very interesting because even a cow, we'll just use a cow as an example, still gets roughly seventy percent of its caloric intake from short chain saturated fats from the bacterial fermentation of all that fiber that they consume. And it's the bacteria that actually are able to take what they, so even, even herbivores are actually, you know, all large mammals are designed to get their primary caloric intake from fat. But in the case of herbivores, they have a fermentative digestive system that is, has the ability to extract all of the nutrition from plant-based foods and um, that, that, you know, that they can then uh, do their, you know, build their tissues with and, and, and sustain them, uh, themselves calorically with. But human beings, on the other hand, we don't have a fermentative-based digestive system. We have a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system. We're designed to get a lot of nutrients from animals that have synthesized certain things for us. Um, and, um, you know, the, the omega-3s, for instance. So there, there are two, the two fatty acids most responsible for human cognition. We have to realize that our brains are basically made up almost entirely of fat by dry weight. Um, and our brains are constructed from the very fats that we supply it with, with what we choose to eat. And the two fats that are most responsible for our unique human cognition are these 20 and 22 carbon fatty acids, arachidonic acid and docosahexaenoic acid, both of which within our food supply are exclusively found within animal source foods. Now, with, with respect to docosahexaenoic acid, which is this elongated form of omega-3, and it's, it's the DHA part of EPA and DHA, right? Um, you can't get this from flax oil. You are not going to get this from chia oil or walnuts or sanchanichi oil or any of these other plant-based fats, uh, plant-based sources of alpha-linolenic acid. There's an entire elongation process that needs to occur for even uh, under ideal circumstances, even 6% of the alpha-linolenic acid converting into EPA. And probably none of it uh, will convert to DHA. Um, and that, you know, um, if DHK isn't in your diet, it's not in your brain. And we, we have to have it from with what it is that we choose to eat. Um, and if you are of Northern European descent, if you are of Celtic descent, of native descent of any kind, you don't have the Delta-6 desaturase enzyme that you need to even take the first step in that elongation process. Okay. So you, if you have a developing brain, you know, and, um, a rapidly developing brain. Animal source foods are absolutely central to that. Um, there's something, you know, uh, referred to in, in anthropology or paleoanthropology, whatever, called the expensive tissue hypothesis. And um, it's, it's based on the idea that our human brain is extremely expensive in terms of its ongoing energy requirements. And, and it's interesting to point out that you know, creatures with big brains don't necessarily have a metabolic rate any faster than those with smaller brains, but 
but the metabolic requirement needs to be compensated for in some other way. And this metabolic requirement over the course of our evolution has been progressively met by offsetting the size of our guts as compared to our primate ancestors. So, you know, uh, humans basically have a much smaller digestive tract than our closest, say, primate relatives, say the chimpanzee, for instance. Um, human colon, which is the most fermentative part of our digestive system, makes up maybe 20% of our total digestive system, whereas in a, something like a chimp, it's at least 52%, right? They look like they've been drinking beer all day. They've got these big barrel guts that are fermentation vats that are much better designed to make um, use of plant-based foods. And, but even chimps, all great apes, all great apes, with the exception of gorillas, eat some meat. And gorillas have a brain about a third the size that would be expected for a primate of their size. Um, so, uh, and, you know, chimps will hunt and, and eat meat, but they it's usually small amounts and fairly lean. But even chimps get at least 60% of their caloric intake from the short-chain saturated fats from the bacterial fermentation of all that fiber that they consume. So, um, so again, we have very different digestive tracts, and um, and uh, so you know, as humans, we have a very greatly shortened large intestine and a significantly lengthened small intestine that designs us to get our primary nutritional and neurological needs met by directly consuming a much more nutrient dense diet that's rich in a variety of fats. Now, again, we also have a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system versus that fermentative-based digestive system that is had by herbivores. We are really literally incapable of extracting all of the potential nutrition contained within plants in a way that allows for all of our nutritional needs. And, you know, there's a very strong correlation between brain size and dietary nutrient density um, relative to the available, um, you know, to available uh, fats capable of giving rise to sophisticated cognition. So, right. yeah. All right. Now, I have a question for you because obviously your brain and your cognition is unbelievable, Nora. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just into this. Oh, yeah. I want to know oh, what you up. eat. I want to know what you eat. I'm sure. Is that what you're thinking, Kim? What is she eating? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I eat Twinkies. Yeah, Twinkies. No, <laughs> can you, can you give us a typical beautiful day of, uh, I know you've just been out in the garden, I think I heard you say. Um, well, no, I was out doing some other things uh, in oh. the yard. Um, but yeah, no, not, not, although there is a vegetable garden out there, but we're a long ways toward harvesting any of it. We're still in, the, we're still in springtime here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's, it's finally gorgeous out. Oh my gosh, everything's in bloom. It's glorious. Um, so, you know, I may or may not um, have anything for breakfast. And breakfast could be, um, you know, a, a something as simple as maybe a, a hard-boiled egg or something like that. I, I can only really eat duck eggs. I don't tolerate chicken eggs. For some reason, duck eggs are okay for me. So I lucked out there. But but I don't get to eat those in the wintertime here because ducks don't seem to lay eggs in the wintertime. So um, I'm looking forward to having my, my first, you know, small omelet or whatever. But... Uh, but if I do eat breakfast, you know, it could be a cup of, um, you know, full fat bone broth or, you know, roasted marrow bone or something. Or 
uh, maybe a, a, a pastured heirloom, you know, pork patty, maybe two, just two, three ounces. What I'm describing, by the way, is, is the, the, the dietary approach that I advocate for is not a high protein diet. It is not a high meat diet. It, um, I'm very much about moderating protein intake. And, and um, one of the reasons for that is that, you know, when I looked at what our ancestors did and thought, okay, well, I, you know, is that reason enough for us to do the same? And how would we know? How I answered that question was by going and looking at what goes on in longevity research, because that is able to point out the kinds of um, things that are likeliest to extend our, not just extend our healthy lifespan. If we're extending our healthy lifespan, we're doing it in part by avoiding disease. So, um, and there are two basic principles that have emerged from nearly a century now of longevity research, uh, but only in recent years. Uh, nearly a century of longevity research has uh, come up with the idea that caloric restriction is somehow something that that improves our healthy lifespan. But they didn't know why. It seemed counterintuitive. And it wasn't until relatively recent years, in the last decade or two, that they discovered the reason why. And it involves two mechanisms. Number one, the, it, the less of a demand that we have for insulin over the course of our lives, the longer we will live and the healthier we will be by far. That insulin isn't a blood sugar hormone because insulin is identical in its molecular structure, whether you are uh, a yeast cell or in a, or in a planaria, you know, or, or in a primate. <clears throat> it's about the coordination of energy stores with reproduction and lifespan. And in the case of, of us mammals, it will take excess nutrients and move them into storage in case of a famine. Well, of the three major macronutrients, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, the only one for which there is no scientifically established human dietary requirement, not in any medical textbook, not in any textbook of human physiology, is carbohydrates. We can manufacture all the glucose that we need, that our body might need, and it, which isn't much, by the way, from a combination of protein and fat in the diet. And so we really have no actual requirements for sugar or starch in any manner, shape, or form. There's nobody wandering around in the world uh, with a carbohydrate deficiency. There is such a thing as having an essential fatty acid deficiency. There's such a thing as having an amino acid deficiency. No such thing as having a carbohydrate deficiency. So, um, but, so in my mind, the fact that it isn't required anyway and that anything, we know that, you know, the carbohydrates, um, because they're not required, virtually every molecule of carbohydrate that we consume, you know, sugar or starch is basically considered excess. And so whatever we can't immediately use as rocket fuel to outrun some apparent threat or, um, or exert ourselves in some extreme way is going to get squirreled away in some way, shape, or form. First, you know, if it's a small amount, maybe in the form of glycogen in your liver and your muscles. But if you, you know, eat enough of it, and it doesn't take that much more because we don't have that much room, more than about a couple thousand calories worth, really, uh, for glycogen. Um, if, if we eat much more of it, then your liver is going to convert that into triglycerides, blood fats, and then it's going to get squirreled away in places that a lot of people would probably rather not have it. And so, um, so that's why we associate insulin with, with blood sugar. 
But sugar in and of itself, it auto-oxidizes, it, 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 has an inf- it creates an inflammatory response, um, and it generates free radical activity. It's, it's, it's not a, you know, if you, you know, eat, say, I don't know, a spoonful of lard or something like that, which I don't know why anybody would do, but um, then you're actually going to be pretty metabolically quiet with that. Now, there isn't going to be a whole lot that happens that, that is going to be ringing alarm bells in your body. But if you, you know, eat a big spoonful of sugar, um, that is an emergency. You know, your body sets about, um, you know, generating quite a lot of insulin to get that out of your bloodstream as quickly as possible because it is inherently damaging. Both insulin and sugar do damage uh, to your blood vessels. Um, and so your body attempts to kind of get that out very quickly and burn it off as, as fast as it can. So it will always burn the sugar first to get it out of there. Um, and But we're not designed uh, to just rely on sugar alone. Uh, that's not, um, you know, nature would never have been so stupid as to make us reliant on something so uh, unreliable, uh, something that you have to eat every two hours in order to maintain. Um, you know, if, if, we, if we were truly dependent on sugar as a primary source of fuel, you know, glucose, because we hear that medical authorities will tell us what, you know, and dietary authorities, oh, you have to have glucose to run everything. You have to have glucose to run your brain, run your organs. That's a misleading statement. It is only provisionally true. It is only true if you have um, cultivated a rather unnatural, I might add, uh, dependence on sugar as a primary source of fuel by what you choose to eat, by a diet that's high in carbohydrates. But, uh, and, and sugar is basically rocket fuel. You know, those complex carbs uh, that they tell you should be the base of the food pyramid and all of that, you know, those are basically, let's say your brown rice and your beans and your, your sweet potatoes and things like that. Um, they're the metabolic, or they're, they're the uh, equivalent of, say, twigs on your metabolic fire. And then your white rice and your bread and your pasta and your white potatoes and things like that, that's like crumpled up paper on that metabolic fire. And then you have things like, you know, sugary beverages and juice and, um, and uh, you know, alcoholic beverages and things like that that are quite a bit more like lighter fluid or gasoline on that metabolic fire. Now, if all you had was kindling to heat your house with, assuming it ever gets cold in Australia and you have a wood stove, yeah. um, and all you have is kindling you know, to, to heat your house with, you can do it. And guess what? 98 or more percent of the general population does it exactly that way. But what are you actually doing? You know, you're sitting there with, with, with the door of the uh, stove open and you're constantly reaching for that next handful of kindling to keep the fire going. It's, it becomes a preoccupation, and, and you can never wander too far away you know, you know, in body or mind from that kindling um, to keep that fire going, you know, or else. It's just, it's not happy consequences. And so, uh, but what's the alternative to this? You know, and, or say, for instance, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, you, you wake up and, you know, at 3 a.m. and it's cold and you look at, oh, my God, the fire's going out. and You've got to, you know, stuff it full of paper or whatever. There's an analogy here, by the way, yeah. um, is a lot of people have trouble sleeping because they get low blood sugar at night. Yeah. But what's the alternative? Well, what if instead you just put a nice big fat log on the fire? 
And all of a sudden now you're, you're free to go about your business and to do this or that. You're not preoccupied with it. You sleep through the night, you wake up in the morning, you look in the wood stove and, oh yeah, the fire's burning down. I guess I'll just throw another log on. That's freedom. And when you're eating, you know, you know, periodically you may get hungry, but you're not going to suffer constant cravings and you're not going to be constantly reaching for something to stuff in your face just because you have to keep your blood sugar up or else. And um, that, you know, fat provides, by the way, double the calories per gram of sugar or protein, but it actually has the potential to provide more than four times the energy. We store it quite efficiently. And if you cultivate a fat-burning metabolism as opposed to a sugar-burning metabolism, you, you take the sugar out, you tell your body, okay, don't, don't be looking for that. It ain't, it ain't here. So here's what you have to work with. Um, your body then becomes very efficient at, at making use of fat as a primary source of fuel. And your brain can start to run on almost nothing but ketones, which are kind of the water-soluble energy units of fat produced by your liver in response to a low-carbohydrate intake. And your brain actually runs better on ketones. And here you have now... Um, an incredibly stable and reliable source of fuel, even in the absence of regular meals. And even the thinnest, the thinnest person listening to this right now probably has at least 100 to 120 or 150,000 kilocalories of fat on their body that they could be tapped into as fuel ongoing, even again, in the absence of regular meals, yeah. um, if you're metabolically adapted to doing so. And I know the image that comes to mind for me is is sort of a you know a huge gasoline super tanker going down the highway, and uh, and you see them pull into gas stations, you know, <laughs> you know they've got thousands of gallons of gasoline ro you know rolling around in the big tank and back, but they're pulling up to the gas gas you know uh, to the gas pump to to pour fuel into this tiny little tank because they're not obviously tapped into that bigger tank. And it's sort of metaphorically what humans are doing all the time. If, if you're overweight and you want to lose weight, you're not going to lose weight. You're not going to get good at burning fat by burning sugar all day long. In fact, it's, it's, it's impossible if you're producing insulin to burn any fat. Um, if you're producing insulin, fat burning comes to a screeching halt. So... Um, you know, you, you don't get good at playing tennis all day or by, at playing tennis by, by playing golf all day long. You get good at doing something by doing it. And doesn't it make sense that we would have been designed in a way that would have um, taken advantage of our, our actual unique capacity as humans, our, our brain's unique capacity as humans, of being able to run on almost nothing but ketones full time. We're, we're the only species. And it's interesting that True. we, we are were literally... The species, aren't we? Uh, you know, there's no other species on the planet um, that actually does um, what we do, and that's produce ketones from eating fats or having fats. Well, well other animals can produce ketones, but we, no other animal um, has a brain that can run on ketones full-time to the exclusion, to the virtual exclusion of anything else. Ah, there, there's some... 
couple that, that can do it for short periods of time, but not full time like we can. Like I, I had heard, I've been listening to Dr. Beach. I, I, you know, he's a specialist oh, yeah. in ketones. And he was saying the only other animal that does it is a lactating cow, but they don't even right. do it for the reasons we do it. So right, I right, exactly. That, I find that absolutely and, fascinating. Yeah, I do too. And, and not only that, but we're literally born into this world in a state of ketosis. ketosis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Babies come into this world burning ketones. Ketones, once that onset of suckling takes place, ketones, ketone bodies become the major fuel for brain development. Mm. And children don't start craving carbs until we start feeding them to them. Right. And so our, again, our brains are constructed from the very fats that we, that we supply it with, with what we choose to eat. And, um, you know, we're, we're not, we're not potato heads, <laughs> you know, we're not grain brains, we're fat heads. Hmm. And, and um, it's sort of interesting that since the time where we adopted agriculture uh, about 10,000 years ago un- until now, so in the last 10,000 years, we've actually lost just over 10% of our brain volume hmm. in the process. We went from a diet that was roughly 90% meat and fat to one that you know, is almost the opposite, We're almost a full-on carbohydrate diet. And um, you would think that if, that, if, that if carbs were the thing that we had to have and that was the best thing for our brain, that our, our brains would have exploded in size by now because we're, we're doing this unprecedented thing. We're eating a carbohydrate-based diet for the first time in all of our evolutionary history, right? This, this, this is unprecedented. And, um, and it's not working out <laughs> quite the way we might like. No. You know, and right now the, the statistics are that one in two people by age 85 will have Alzheimer's disease, you know, uh, and these, these, this, and I have a close family member that is dying of that very horrible disease right now. You know, this is, and that, and it, and by the way, Alzheimer's has also been termed type three diabetes. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, what are, what are these amyloid plaques, but glycated tangles of proteins in the brain, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's the brain loses its ability to make use of glucose and then starts to shrink away. And what one thing that they have found can have a profound effect on stalling and, and um, even potentially to some degree reversing uh, the process or at least reversing many of the symptoms uh, is a fat-based ketogenic diet. In fact, you know, the... Um, you know, the benefits associated with a fat-based ketogenic approach to eating, which involves the virtual elimination of sugar and starch from the diet, you know, less than 50 grams a day of those. Um, the moderation of protein. So no more than, say, I think it's, for you guys, I think it's 60 to 90 grams of meat um, of meat or fish or eggs or whatever in a, in a given meal. So there's about in, in 30 grams of meat or fish, I'll put this in your metric terms. Um, there's about seven grams of protein. You really don't want to exceed about 21 grams of protein in any given meal because there's the second mechanism behind aging. And, uh, you know, again, our ancestors ate a lot of meat, but that wasn't necessarily optimal for them. And it's not necessarily optimal for us either. We are absolutely, um, very elegantly designed to make use of animal source foods as a primary source of nourishment. There's no question about this. We need the complete, we have that hydrochloric acid based digestive system that is triggered by the consumption of complete protein from animal source foods. And that then sets up the whole digestive process. Um, 
you know, and, and helps optimize the whole digestive process the rest of the way down from what our gallbladder does to what our pancreas does and, and on down the pike all, through all this pH signaling. But, um, Nora, can I just interrupt you? Sure. Um, the, the, the freaky thing is, is that we're running out of time and, and oh, sure. just, I, I just would love to continue this and, and maybe and hopefully we could do another podcast because I'm just blown away. I have never felt so quiet sitting here listening to someone yeah. be asked such a simple question and give yeah, us can the absolute. Off, no, it's more like, how do you know so much? How do you, and how do you people do this? How do you, it's the, it's what you're eating, isn't it? Yeah. Well, then, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I, I like to think that it, that it, yeah, mm -hmm. that it, that it keeps my brain uh, firing just, on at least one or two cylinders anyway. I just love how your mind goes and how what I get from you is that it's never a simple answer. So when we hear people say you should go on the ketogenic diet or we hear people say vegetarian's best or when you hear people say that paleo is the best, it's actually, like you said at the beginning, more around the biohacking, but understanding. If you can understand, I, I never even thought about I haven't given it a lot of thought around the, the big pot bellies of the of the orangutan and the fermentation processes and all of those sorts of things. So from my perspective, you've you've given me such a big awareness. And just before I know um, Cindy and Karen finish up, I just wanted to ask, you gave me the most phenomenal recipe um, food <laughs> for my cat. And I just want you to know that my cat is besotted with it and um i'm wondering if you wouldn't mind um if we can put that recipe into our show notes with this would that well, be a possibility i tell you what what i'll do is i actually just i was sort of inspired after i gave you that recipe to uh actually write it down and there was something i had forgotten actually to add to it for oh will you send it back to us so oh, we yeah, can yeah. so so yeah so there is on my blog you go to primalbody-primalmind.com and you'll see the, the, the tab at the top. You click on blog. And if you scroll down, you'll see the article titled, My Cat Eats Paleo. And it's actually an article I wrote entirely about my cat, which, which I had a lot of fun writing, actually. It's very different from my typical writing. I, I was laughing myself as I wrote it. Um, and so you get to see my cat and how he looks at, you know, 13 years of age and going on 14. And, oh. um, and anyway, you know, he's, he's gorgeous and amazing. He still plays like a kitten and he's, he never goes to the vet ever, ever. He's been, hasn't been to the vet since before I brought him home. Um, and he hasn't needed it and knock on wood, he won't. So my goal is to keep him happy and healthy so that, you know, he won't need that and so that he lives the longest uh, possible uh, lifespan. And wow. so I've basically been feeding him a raw food diet since he first uh, came home. And um, you can read all about it in, in my blog post and the recipe is there. Well, we'll put the link into the show notes. Can you tell everybody how they can get a hold of your new book and your website and any anything? Are you coming to Australia again? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to plan something for around the end of the year. And that's, you know, something we can, you know... I don't know, talk about offline a little bit. I'm trying to uh, kind of coordinate some different things, talk to some different people, get, get something set up. And so that's, that's a possibility, but I don't have any hard dates yet. Um, so my primary website is primalbody-primalmind.com. And uh, I also have, 
have been have recently created a new educational program. And I call that educational program Primal Restoration. And um, it's all about basically uh, providing people with all of the sort of the educational details so that they can, well, it'll certainly help people make the most of what they have read in my books and, and whatever and, and heard on podcasts like this or whatever. Um, but very, very foundational information about health and well-being from a whole variety of perspectives, talking about blood sugar, talking about, you know, ketosis, talking about detoxification, talking about, um, you know, the you know, brain and, and mental health and a whole host of other um, of topics that, uh, you know, that are, that are issues for people, autoimmunity, you know, all of these kinds of things. And it's a repository of an enormous amount of information. Some, I dare say, you're not likely to find anyplace else. And it's, it's really, I'm, I'm very passionate about it. And I have quite a number of people um, that, are, that are taking the course right now and, and are absolutely loving it. And it's, it's just a very rich amount of, of information. If you happen to be a nutritional therapist, actually, um, you can also get continuing education credits by taking, by taking the uh, course. And it's a weekly it's a weekly class that's ongoing. So, uh, and, you, and you can go to primalrestoration.com. Uh, actually, I'll tell for your viewers, if your viewers go to, or your listeners, I should say, um, go to primalnora.com, um, you can get a, um, well, just for, for the month of May, you can get the first two weeks for free. So wow. there's that. So that's great offer. Yeah. That's an awesome offer, Nora. Yeah, yeah. So, beautiful, beautiful. Thank yeah. you so much. I think our listeners will be will be thrilled to get access to something like that. I think this yeah. has been, you know, obviously I haven't had a great deal to contribute because it's, you know, um, it's it it's very different. It's a very different approach, but it's fascinating to be on the receiving right. end. You're very kind. You're very yeah. No, no, no. Well, I'm, see, for me, it's 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 a way of life. You know, I, I don't I don't I don't ascribe to um, any of the infighting that goes on between yeah. people's views around what's right and what's wrong. I think people must do their own research and people must be educated. And I love that today's podcast has been nothing but that. And I think that that's you know for all of our listeners out there who have an interest in this way of eating and really want to take it to the next step, I feel like you're in super safe hands. So, Nora, thank you so much for being a part of today's podcast with us and sharing your beauty, your knowledge, your your information, and obviously your your deepest heart's passion with us. Right. Thank you. So thank much. you. You're very very generous for saying so. Yes. Thank you. You're amazing. We love the you. Uh, thanks, yeah. Kim and Cindy. You yeah. you guys are great. And uh, by the way, I do want to leave everybody with the thought that that all of this is predicated on um, an absolutely unwavering emphasis on food quality. So when yeah. I talk about animal source foods, I'm not talking about feedlot food. I'm talking about animals that have been allowed to live out in fresh air and sunshine and eat a diet that is natural and healthy for them. Yeah. So that is the only way that, that this can work. So. And I think a lot of our listeners, um, certainly our, our devotees, <laughs> it, it would ascribe to the same, um, the same view on that. It's, it's all got to be humanely based and, and organic mm-hmm. and 
clean, you know. So, Nora, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. And for all of our listeners, you guys have got access now to all of the websites where you can reach out to Nora. You can investigate her, um, her, her courses that she's got coming up. And it would be great to be able to have Nora back on the show. So please go to our website at all the, or not our website, our Facebook page at all the w's.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat and make sure that you post any questions that you have there or any comments that you have about today's podcast. Make sure that you post them right there on our Facebook page so that then we've got all of your questions and all of your inquiries to be able to forearm Nora for her next um what should we call it? Next installment of awesomeness. Guys, you can also go to um, all the W's dot the wellness com forward slash up for a chat. And you can certainly post your comments and your questions right there as well. So thank you everybody for tuning in to another amazing podcast where we bring you all of the good shizbang, all the brilliant minds, all the incredibly researched facts and information where you get to then go ahead and make some seriously informed decisions that can enhance your performance and enhance your life on a really profound level. Thanks for being a part of the Up For A Chat show. Make sure that you give us a five-star rating when you go to iTunes and we're going to see you right here next week on Up For A Chat. Don't forget, tell everybody that you know about Up For A Chat Let's get the whole world listening to this show. It's time to up-level, my friends. We're going to see you next week. Big hugs coming your way. Bye, everybody. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.